I think there's a lot of noise with public employees right now, but our students work so hard. They do so much for the state, um, not only in Montana, but across the region. And I think we're just really committed to advancing that and doing new things. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. This show is proudly presented by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. All right, welcome back. Thanks for tuning in today. Today, I sit down with one of my favorite people here at the University of Montana, and that's Professor Sarah Rinfrey, a dear friend and a close colleague. Uh, Sarah and I collaborate on the University of Montana Big Sky Poll, and we're going to tell you all about that project today. Sarah is a professor of political science. She is also the director of our hugely successful Masters of Public Administration program here at the University of Montana. She's done some amazing things with that, along with her colleagues. We'll talk about that a little bit. Anyway, today we talk about the Big Sky Poll. We are in the process of releasing the results of our fall poll, and we're actually back in the field with another poll right now as we, as you listen, and we should have the results of those in the next couple of weeks as we lead up to the election. We got some interesting poll results that are quite a bit different than other polls that have been run in the state, and today Sarah and I get into the weeds a little bit about um, why that might be, how the methods across the different polls uh, being taken in the state of Montana differ, and why the University of Montana is uniquely positioned to um, produce a high-quality poll and the academic mission that drives that. We also talked to Sarah a little bit about her research. She is a rare breed. She loves bureaucracy and has chosen to make her life's work studying how bureaucracies succeed or fail and why. She's interested in process and how institutions make change. And she talks about that in today's interview. And I try to pull out the lens a little bit and get Sarah's ideas on how an institution like the University of Montana might approach change more efficiently based on what she's learned through her research. Anyway, far-reaching conversation. Uh, We get uh, into some politics, and we try to be precise with our language as much as we can. Enjoy, and I bring you Sarah Rinfrey. Okay, so we're here today with Professor Sarah Rinfrey. Sarah, thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, we've been trying to uh, get this done for a while. We, we actually did an interview a few months back and um, never got it on the air. So I'm, I'm glad we're finally, uh, you're a tough woman to pin down. So thanks. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, I feel like I see you about 100 times a week with various uh, collaborations we have. But um, it's nice to get a chance to slow down and actually talk about the work we do together. So uh, thank you. And thanks for the, your support of this project, too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, set the stage here. We, you know, we've been working a few years together on a variety of things, research projects, etc. And you had this bright idea, I don't know, two years ago that you approached me with. You wanted to launch a political polling operation here at the University of Montana. Why on earth would you want to do that? Yeah, I think it's our obligation as professors to give us, give our students applied learning experiences. And so... One thing that I experienced as a graduate student at Northern Arizona is that I was the lead 
grad student for the Grand Canyon statewide poll. Mm-hmm. And, and that's so, the, you know, the premier poll coming out of the state of Arizona. Yes. Yeah. And so it was very prestigious at the time. And I just felt really honored to be part of that project from start to finish. We had this elaborate calling center. Um, and I got to work with Dr. Fred Salop, who is one of the top public opinion pollsters in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So pretty remarkable experience. And so fast forward, you know, got the dream job at the University of Montana and you, uh, MSUB had a really fantastic polling operation. Okay. And MSU Billings. MSU Billings. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. And so I thought, why don't we do this at the University of Montana? That faded and... The given, Billings operation kind of, yeah, it, it yeah, did it for a few years did. and then it kind of yeah. faded away. Yes, it yeah. faded away. You know, really great apparatus that they had. And so just initial conversations, you know, why don't we bring this for our students at the University of Montana? One thing that we're lacking across the state is nationwide data that we can be informed participants of what's going on, getting a pulse in Montana, and so engaging our students in that. And so we had a conversation. I said, hey, why, are you interested in doing <laughs> yeah. this? Yeah. Um, and I think it's a great endeavor and to bring together our rock star graduate students in the public administration program and business analytics and co-create um survey design from start to finish and writing press releases and and engaging our students in that process and so we decided last year so we're starting year two Mm -hmm. where we do a six credit um it's a year-long course we have eight students in it this year and just engaging them in the process and public opinion polling and and what that means yeah so a lot there uh one thing i'd like to dig into is you know this this notion that there's not a lot of quality polling data coming out of the state. So typically outside operations are taking the pulse of what's going on in Montana. And that's not to say just the fact that they're an external or, you know, an out-of-state entity doesn't mean that they're not qualified to do it. But um, what are some deficiencies of some of those operations that, you know, use different methodologies to, to, to poll what's going on in Montana? Yeah, I think the concern is that we have an academic mission, right? And so we're providing, you know, we work for the state of Montana and engaging our students in that process. And so we're academic researchers Mm -hmm. versus you have a lot of maybe political campaigns that'll have internal pollsters that will release results or, you know, Gravis Poll has been polling in the state of Montana, which I believe they're out of Florida. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea is that you're engaging in the process with students from Montana informing the conversation. And so we just haven't had that since MSU uh, Billings. And so really re-engaging in that conversation um, and providing the state with data on statewide issues, but also national issues that we haven't been. And it's really important because a lot of times Montana should be at the table in terms of conversation about really important national issues. Mm -hmm. And we're providing that um, not only for the state, but the nation. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, all these poll aggregators, you know, your 538s, your upshots, whatever. I mean, they were modeling the elections um, the last few years. And, and, you know, if they don't have good data to inform those models, you got to question the results. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I mean, that's been a big topic of controversy over the last couple of election cycles. So that kind of takes us to the mechanics of the poll. Like you said, we, we last year we ran our first cohort of students. Uh, again, this is like a student-produced operation. Uh, we run it less like a class and more like a you know live sort of job for students, if you will. And produced our first poll last spring. This fall, 
in the lead up to the, um, the midterm elections. We are sort of in the process of rolling out our results from our first run this fall and some kind of noteworthy results. Uh, it's our first time sort of pegging elections. And uh, you want to talk about those results for the congressional elections, the, 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 the Tester Rosendale race and the, the Williams Gianforte race? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think sometimes, too, people turn off to the political um, aspect of uh, public opinion polling. And so I think what we have done is we're engaging in the U.S. congressional races this time around. But also, too, we were doing a statewide trivia, and so we have different yeah. questions surrounding that yep. as well. And, and, you know, what's the most important issue for Montanans? So just to dive into the, um, the U.S. congressional races, so the U.S. Um, House of Representatives, we do, and keep in mind that we polled August 13th through the 31st. Yeah. And so this is capturing a moment in time. So mm-hmm. perceptions of folks, I think sometimes... You know, the perception is that, oh, you know, you're predicting races. We're in sure. the business of capturing perceptions. Yeah, we'll plant a f- bit of a flag there because we're going to come back to yeah, that. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in many ways, you could argue the world has changed a bit since yes. uh, since these data were collected. But uh, anyway, let's let's talk about what the what the data show. Yeah. So we um, asked respondents. So we polled 618 registered Montanans. And then from that, we had a series of screens to see, you know, if the election were held today, how likely are you to vote? Okay, so some model to to make a determination if this person is likely to vote. Right, yes. So are you going to participate? And so we had a series of questions. And that's just just to kind of drill on that. That's an example of a choice that pollsters make. And that's an area where, you know, it's a little bit of a mix of art and science and different polling operations are... um, you know, make those choices differently about who is, is likely to vote and who is not. Yes, that's correct. And so from that, we asked individuals if the election were held today for the U.S. Senate, which candidate would you vote for? Mm-hmm. And so their options were Democrat John Tester, Republican Matt Rosendale, and Libertarian Rick Breckenridge, or they had the option if they're still undecided. Sure. So from those results, um, we had... In August, 56% said if the election were held in August, they would vote for Democrat John Tester for U.S. Senate. 32% said they would vote for Republican Matt Breckinridge, and 2% said they'd vote for Libertarian Rick Breckinridge. However, 9% were still undecided, which I think is a really important piece that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we get a result like that, I mean, it, it's sort of eyebrow-raising in the sense that you know, historically, this race has been tight. The three times testers won, it's been a tight race. And also, um, you know, there's uh, those other polling operations have pegged the race, you know, in the in the 4%, 5% range. Tester's been, uh, you know, ahead. But so that race raised our eyebrows, um, thinking, okay, uh, what's going on with our results? So, sort of spun us into this pretty heavy, you know, as social scientists, we always will audit our results carefully. Um, This result actually motivated us to seek external auditing for our results from from Fred and others, uh, as you mentioned. Um, So yeah, what what was kind of your thinking when you you saw this result? And and, and how did you approach um, getting your head around it? Yeah, I think a couple of things, again, this is in August, and a lot of things has happened since. But you know, you have the incumbency factor. And so John Mm -hmm. Tester has been in office for quite some time. I think he's very familiar with folks across the state. Um, And I do think that the 9% of undecided, and so typically undecideds are going to lean 
um, against voting for the incumbent. Okay. And so and it, that's based on historical trends. Yeah, historical trends okay. and public opinion research. And so, you know, if you look at it from that angle, then and then with the margin of error. So our mm-hmm. margin of error is plus or minus four. So when you take your results, you either add or subtract four percentage points. Right. Each way. Yes, each way. And so I think with that said, you know, we're consistent with what we're seeing. And as the race gets closer, the um, the public's opinion is changing and it does the races do tighten as we progress towards the November election. So I think from our perspective, it makes sense. Um, and and we I know our our methodology is, is very rigorous um, in terms of using telephone methodology um, and using a random sample. And it's, you know, it's a reputable approach. Um, and then compared to some of the other polling that's been out there, they're using online panels. Mm-hmm. And that's a really new area in public opinion research. And that's something that I think we've discussed in doing with our students and piloting that right. in the spring. So we're providing cutting edge approaches for our students. But I think, you know, this is capturing in August. And if you look at the undecideds and the margin of error, I think this is consistent what we're seeing trending currently. The viewer might look at this result and say, wow, 16 points. How on earth is that happening? But, you know, like you said, when you consider the undecideds, when you consider the incumbency factor and other things in the mix here, uh, most prominently being, you know, these polls all have different methodologies. Some use a phone survey. Some use, uh, you know, we use a phone survey. Others use this online sampling methodology that's totally different. There's a mail survey in the field right now from MSU. They're going to be releasing their results. We'll see what they have. So anyway, it's it's hard to compare apples and oranges. You know, it's, you know, you might look at our poll and think that we're a bit of an outlier, but in context, maybe not so much. Yeah, and I think the other thing to consider, and one thing that we learned from the election of President Donald Trump, is that pollsters weren't releasing their information, and as researchers, we are should release the data as is. And I think that that's one thing that was really concerning is that a lot of pollsters were not releasing their results. And so therefore you're not able to accurately portray what's happening in the mindset of, um, of voters. Okay. So yeah, let's, let's just be explicit about that because that's really foundational to our collaboration here. You know, what Sarah just said was that some pollsters were not releasing their results in the lead up to the 2016 election, meaning they were getting results that showed strong support for President Trump, or at that point, candidate Trump. Mm -hmm. And they didn't believe it. They thought they missed. They thought they were wrong. They were reading the upshot and seeing 98% that, you know, 98% chance that Hillary Clinton would be elected. So they suppressed their results, right? Mm -hmm. Now, to us, as social scientists, that's kind of counter to what we do, right? We design a study, we state the methodology, we state our intentions, conduct the research, and we have an obligation to release the data. Right? Yes, that's, that's correct. That's what we're in the process of doing. So I don't want to get too geeky on the principles and philosophy of science and stuff, because we'll be down to maybe a listener and a half by the end of this podcast. But anyway, so we got you know strong support for Tester in this particular poll, and then we also have strong support for, for Democrat candidate Kathleen Williams. You want to go over those results? Just yeah. Just very so, quickly. It's the same pattern. Yeah, so same pattern. So same question. You know, if the election were held today for the U.S. House of Representatives, which candidate would you vote for? Mm-hmm. And so we have Dem- Democrat Kathleen Williams at 51%, Republican Greg Giaforte at 38%, and Libertarian Eleanor Swenson at 3%. 
And then undecided for this question is 8%. Yeah, another high percentage of undecided. Yes, so exact same thing that we just discussed. You know, um, again, it's still relatively close. And so we see um, results shifting. It's going to tighten as the race gets closer. And we, yeah, yeah, and I mean, and we're going back out in the field next week, too, to to capture more data for Montanans. Yeah, so I mean, that kind of is is an important piece of this, right? Like we run this poll, Back in late August, and we're releasing the results now. I think we'll both admit that they're they're not as fresh as we'd like them to be. Um, we don't need to get into the details of that necessarily, but you know, with so much changing, and gosh, it feels like the news cycle just changes daily, hourly. <laughs> yeah, so a poll becomes obsolete almost as it's being conducted. But to Sarah's point, we're going back into the field next week, and we'll be publishing a another run, another snapshot of these uh, congressional races. Those results will probably be coming out in late last week in October. Correct. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, well, let's kind of look at some of the other issues in the poll that might be of interest to listeners. The one that you know is particularly interested and maybe self-serving to us is the six mil levy. So for, for listeners that don't know, the six mil levy is, is a ballot um, referendum that comes up every 10 years uh, and it supports higher education in the state of Montana. It's been approved every 10 years uh, through popular referendum since 1948 and it's up again this year. We did a poll on this referendum uh, a few months back. It was in our spring poll I think we showed 69% uh, of folks favored uh, continuing the levy at that point. Although at that point, we didn't know the exact ballot language. This time, we've gone into the field in late August with the exact ballot language. Um, What did we find, Sarah? Yeah, I think this has been fun for our students because you really get into the weeds of the the science behind public opinion research and coding data. But, you know, it was great this time around. And I think one misnomer that we forget about is that the way in which you respond to something is you're translating that to votes. And so we've mm-hmm. been compared to, oh, well, it only passed, you know, with a little over, you know, 50% last time. And I think folks need to remember that you can't compare apples to oranges. And so we asked this question in three different versions. Um, first, we just asked in, in terms of what's your familiarity with this referendum, the right, six mil right. levy. This was an eye-opening result. Yes, it was. And it happens every 10 years. And sometimes, you know, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast. So <laughs> <laughs> so what you're getting at is very few or relatively few people knew what the six mil levy was. Yes. And actually, 46% said that they were not familiar at all with yeah. the six mil levy. You know, I guess that makes sense. Like, I hadn't heard of it before this election cycle. So Right, yeah. And I didn't live in the state, nor did you, you know. 10 years prior, so it's the first time through it. So, and then we asked, we had the actual ballot language, which is pretty wordy. Um, and so this is approved by the state legislature and the yeah. language that we use. And it, it, it's not the same every time we have it every 10 years. Sure. And of so, course not. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, 71% said they would vote for it. But then we pushed them and said, not pushed them, but just said, you know, are you sure about your vote? Sure. Um, would you change your vote? So out of that 71%, 20% said that they might change their vote. Mm. So even though they supported it, they said, you know, I, 20% said, yeah, I might change my vote before election. And then the folks that said that they'd vote against it, 21% of folks that said they'd vote against it, 35% said they still might change their vote. Um, but 65% said, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to vote against this. Okay. 
Yeah, so a large degree of uncertainty around these measures. So we'll say, you know, it's 70%-ish support Mm -hmm. for the levy, yet those percentages of people that might move their vote are high. Yes. And so things could change. Um, Important that you get out and vote on this issue. That's about all I can safely say on it as a state employee. Um, But yeah, interesting result. I think his last time it passed at what, like 56%? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So it's unlikely to pass at 70%. I think if I were making a prediction, which, you know, we're not necessarily in the prediction business here at the Big Sky Poll, but but yeah, that that degree of uncertainty is is, uh, something to pay attention to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what other results are interesting? Let's talk about that Montana trivia finding. I yes. mean, this is one thing we did. We did this in the spring with um, the state seal and trying to ask people, you know, if they could if they could name what's on the state seal of Montana, and very few were able to do that. This time around, we asked people what if they knew what the highest point was in the state of Montana. And Sarah, what did we find? Yeah, so sixty three percent don't know, um, and twenty two percent said that Granite Peak. And so again, this is something. That's a way to engage folks that are not interested whatsoever in politics um, and a way for our students, too. I mean, one of the things that we're excited about is that we're building longitudinal data. And so we have the Montana trivia question. And, you know, last time we talked about our state seal. And then this time we talked about Granite Peak. And this is something that the students collectively decide what we should ask each time. And I think it's a really great way for students to to give back to our tradition of our state mm-hmm. um, and, and what Montanans think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if I was surprised by that result or not, um, but it certainly is. It is interesting. Um, anyway, so any other results from this poll that are you think are particularly noteworthy? I mean, we've been rolling this thing out in the press the last couple of weeks, and um, we're getting ready for our next run, like we said, that'll come out in, in late October. Um I think two that are really interesting. Um, we asked a national question in terms of immigration policy. Oh, right. That's right. Which is really, really fascinating. And so one of the questions asked, in general, do you think that it should be harder or easier for individuals to legally immigrate to the United States? Mm-hmm. And so this is a question that Pew Research Center asked, which is one of the top public opinion polling entities in the U.S., and it's pretty mixed. You know, 48% of Montanans said that it should be harder and 52% said it should be easier. And so, again, this is a great way for our students to engage in a national conversation and provide data um, for this is going to be a hot topic moving forward post-election in terms of immigration policy and, and what should we do moving forward. And we're engaging in that conversation. Mm-hmm. And we did that previously with tax reform. That was the sort of topical political question that we asked back in the spring and you know who knows what it'll be in the fall um and we could ask a kavanaugh question this this time around right but, uh, but it looks like it might end today so. yeah it might be over but the, you know at the time we're recording here and we release this podcast so who knows what that uh maybe it's not over maybe it's the end of the beginning who, who knows what to to call it at this point um anyway so uh let's take a break here and we'll be back in a moment Remember that A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two great Montana corporations dedicated to cool people doing awesome things. This is Cameron Lawrence, MIS professor in the College of Business, and you're listening to A New Angle. Okay, we're back with uh, my dear colleague, Professor Sarah Renfrey. 
Let's pull the lens back a little bit on this polling stuff and get out of the weeds of the results and just talk more about our broad kind of mission with the Big Sky Poll. I mean, you've mentioned several times that uh, we have an academic mission and we're committed to students. You know, why should we construct this polling operation around students? What is, what is the fundamental guiding philosophy of that choice? You know, we're both professors, and I, I think that we wouldn't be here today if we weren't given the opportunities that we had in our education moving forward. And I think it's so important that we pay it forward. I mean, I'm so indebted to Dr. Fred Solop in mm-hmm. terms of the opportunities that he provided for me at Northern Arizona University. And I wouldn't be here today without it. Yeah. And so I, I think we both feel this way. We have to give back to our students and our state um, and, and provide them with tangible skills when they graduate. And I think there's a lot of noise about that nationwide, but this provides our students with an opportunity to understand how to conduct research, mm-hmm. and that'll help them. I know we one of our former students in our inaugural poll is now working um, for the state of Montana and really in the weeds with data and yep. analysis. And she said, you know, she wouldn't have been able to get that job without this experience. And, and that's what we're about, and it's really exciting. Yeah, so, you know, I think there's more to it than just, there's the giving back piece, like we're providing a service for the state and for beyond, but also, I mean, it it speaks to the kind of way you do education. Mm -hmm. And there needs to be a certain amount of, you know, classroom theory stuff, right? Absolutely. But you got to also do stuff. You know, our students are, you know, doing something new, doing something innovative, doing something pioneering in this state in a sense. So, you know, that, that, that part of it feels really important to me, is, is the sense that um, these students have a great foundation of knowledge to their various programs. Uh, we draw from the Masters of Public Administration program, which Sarah directs, and then we draw from our Masters of Business Analytics program, which is a relatively new program here at the College of Business. And these are the two of the key experiences where those students are actually, you know, doing live projects, right? We have live data with consequence. Right, if we go out there with a poll result that's way off or there's a mistake in our methodology or whatever, like we are exposed both professionally, but also our students are exposed too. So um, yeah, it's kind of live without a net. Yeah, and I think allowing them to work through that, you know, and the classroom is a great space where you can talk about those theoretical implications and, you know, who's doing what or what's the most innovative approach moving forward, but they're actually doing it. Yeah. And living it. And I think, I just think it's such a fantastic experience for students, but also um, that they get to engage in this process from start to finish. It's really hard for them, too. I mean, it's, a, it's been a bit of a learning process for us. Uh, I think back to, you know, there's this moment in graduate school where as a student, you, um, you know, you only really become a professor if you're good at going to school. That doesn't mean you're smart. It means you're good at going to school. Those are two different things, or they can be different things. So I remember this moment where, you know, I got pretty good at answering questions. And then you get to this moment where, like, you're expected to ask the questions. Mm -hmm. That's very difficult. Like, that's a degree of ambiguity that you're certainly not used to. And we see our students confronting that with a poll. Now, these are high achievers. They're used to, you know, being told where the goalpost is and running as hard as they can toward it. Um... Now they're sort of having to determine where that goalpost is, and and there's pretty special learning in that. Yeah, and I think it's a really high-paced 
pushing them to, you know, a lot of them have really strong backgrounds in this and maybe not as familiar. They all have, they all bring something different to the table and and just truly exceptional students. But it, it really pushes them to, you know, things that we don't normally do in the classroom. And so you might do an applied project for this semester or, you know, and, you know, we both have professional programs. But this is really, really, I mean, writing press releases and how do you convey data in a way that people can read it? Sure. And I think, um, and, and you, we check our data, you know, 15, 30 times and, <laughs> yeah. you know, rerunning reports. And I think sometimes as a student, that's frustrating and like, well, I already did this once. Why do I have to do it again? And yeah, yeah, it's done. I passed it in. Yeah, I turned it in. Give me my grade. And and I think that our students understand that and I think they appreciate it. And we, we go through the process. Yeah, we, I'd say they've grown to it. They're growing to appreciate it. Yeah, right? but it's, I it's think a journey. Yeah. it's living and learning together. Yeah, <laughs> well put. <laughs> Yeah, we should form it. You know, we should record that as an advertisement or something <laughs> for the Masters of Public Administration. Anyway, let's talk about that program a little bit. So you're the director of that program. Yes. That, in many ways, has kind of been, um, you know, an unsung hero at the University of Montana in the sense that you've had explosive growth in that program over the last three, four years under your leadership. How can you do that in an environment where uh, we're having a hard time with enrollment? I think our commitment. I mean, our faculty. You know, we all have practitioner backgrounds, and we are so committed to advancing professional careers. And so the vast majority of our students are working professionals in public and nonprofit entities um, at the on the front lines, or, you know, the Attorney General just graduated from our program yeah, this yeah. summer. Attorney General Tim Fox. Yeah. So I just think our commitment to meeting students where they are, flexible course delivery, Mm-hmm. Where we do online. Yeah, an online option, 100%. Uh, yeah, online, 100%, in person, hybrid. Now we have robots. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, asks are all about her, her robots. Maybe we'll put a picture up in the show notes or yes. something so people can see what the heck we're talking about. Yeah, but it's just a way to, I mean, our classes are one night a week in person after yeah. work so people can come and. I mean, it's one thing I did, too. Uh, I didn't even know what a master's of public administration program was. I was working for the state of Ohio doing budget policy work and I was at a job fair, you know, recruiting for the state of Ohio. And, you know, I took a non-degree class. So it was try it before you buy it or we do here. And um, I think it really changed my life because you could apply what you're doing at work to the classroom. And I think that's what we're about. And I think there's a lot of noise with public employees right now, but our students work so hard. They do so much for the state. Um, Not only in Montana, but across the region. And I think we're just really committed to advancing that and doing new things. I mean, we're even using virtual reality goggles in the classroom right now to be better prepared public administrators. Yeah, you wouldn't think that, you know, a a public administration program at a university would be the place where you're finding a lot of innovation. Yet your team is doing some really cool things with technology and and flexible delivery and, and trying to make the product we can get into some trouble talking about an academic offering as a product, but, you know. I was like, we the, don't really do product in public administration. Right. Okay. <laughs> we can debate that. But you're developing a product that is appealing and flexible and uh, meets the students where they are, which is kind of one of those pithy phrases that is supposed to be a tenant of what we're doing here. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, I mean, it's my role as a director to – you know, talk and meet with every single student in our program and make sure that they're getting the education that they need. Yeah. Okay. So let's kind of move on from that and talk about 
broadly speaking, your area of research, because it kind of, <laughs> it's, it's one that sort of just makes me chuckle. So Sarah, you are an expert on bureaucracy. Yes. We have t-shirts to show it too. Uh, I, yeah, I've seen <laughs> the t-shirts. They're about as exciting as bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, my, why on earth study bureaucracy? Why is it worth studying? You know, I think we've all been taught, you know, Congress passes law, right? And so what happens after that? And sure. that's the bureaucracy. We're implementing, the, interpreting the law and carrying it out. And what we do on a day-to-day basis affects our daily lives. And I'm really in the weeds. I mean, I'm super nerdy. I do administrative rulemaking. Um, that's my area of expertise, which is just the fancy yeah, word. Yeah, well, tell us what administrative rulemaking even is. So it's a process. It's the the policymaking process of agencies. Okay, and that's a lot in that statement. Yes. Um, and so once Congress passes a law, it's it's extremely vague. And so you have agencies, the Environmental Protection Agency, you know, U.S. Forest Service, and you have folks within there, rule writers, that interpret that legislation. They create a rule. Yep. Awesome website, the Federal Register, and it's open for public comment. All of us can participate in that process. They analyze it. They will provide feedback on those comments. They issue a final rule, and it becomes law. So how, how on earth did you get interested in this? You know, it's so interesting. I was just talking with a student about this. Um, we have this fantastic student. I mean, all our students are awesome. But just, you know, picking topics of research that you're interested in. Originally, when I was doing my doctorate work, I was going to do stuff on public lands in the Bureau of Land Management. Okay. And then I took a course with Dr. Jacqueline Vaughn, who's one of the top environmental policy scholars in the U.S. It was on environmental regulations. And I was like, wow, this is so awesome that you have been taught and trained over and over again that, you know, Congress is, you know, they do, they have the lawmaking authority, but then what happens after? Okay. And just so interested in another way for us to engage in participatory means and participating in that process. So as you're, as you're saying that, I mean, it sounds like you were inspired. Um, another take on it is maybe, maybe scared that you have this notion that, you know, the rubber hits the road in Congress, but actually, you, know, you tell me if I'm wrong in this interpretation, but it's sounding like this rulemaking process, this administrative bureaucratic process you're talking about is actually where the real change in pol- the stuff that affects our lives actually yeah. happens. Yeah, absolutely. There's state process and then federal process, and I focus more on the federal process, but, you know, how are groups coming to the table? Are they trying to you know, lobby members of agencies, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. it's just completely different in the way in which we were taught. And I was just so intrigued, like learning something new and, and just sharing that with students. You know, I was never taught that in mm-hmm. American government. Sure. And I think that, yeah, it was all checks and balances. Yeah. And blah, blah, right. Blah. And, um, it's just such a fascinating concept and, and just digging into it. And yeah, I've worked on it for the last, what, 12, 15 years. Sure. And, um, yeah, it's been really fun, and there's a small group of us that researches across the U.S. and and some great folks at our law school too. That, and so, you, know, you, yeah, you are a fan of bureaucracy, right? I mean, you think it's important. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I'm a student and scholar of the bureaucracy and understanding what happens when the rubber heats hits the road. I guess. I mean, this is something I think about a lot, and you know, we're kind of getting a little bit not off topic, but I think. Uh, this hits home in the sense that we're, we're, we're working for this institution that um, 
there's a lot of debate as to whether and how much and how it needs to change, right? And I, I'm pretty firmly in the camp that it needs to make some some important changes. I think we probably are, we probably share that view. But the way institutions change is is complicated. I mean, we're not really built for change. Institutions are sort of, particularly universities, are built kind of not to change. So how do you view process, bureaucracy, et cetera, in the, through the lens of, okay, we're working at a place that needs to make some changes to do what we do better. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this pertains to my research, too, in in terms of the rulemaking process. I mean, it was set up by Congress, right? And so you have these parameters. And I think the slippery slope with institutions is when you don't have a clear process or if that process constantly changes. (laughs) Yeah. And so I think one of, and we were just talking about this last week in class, where the bureaucracy is always, you know, depicted as slow and That's boring easy. Yeah, and lazy. It's easy to just sort of, yeah, and just say, yeah. you know, yeah. But, you know, there's a couple of reasons that happens, right? Because the U.S., we often make incremental decisions and, mm-hmm. and changes where people cannot, you know, changing something rapidly, you know, 360-degree change is, is often hard for folks. But I think over time, if you don't have a clear process – and it constantly changes, I think that muddles what you're doing. And I think that's what we're seeing at the university. So do you have a view from your research or from your you know, your personal experience? Like, what are the tenets of a good process for change? I think clear, <laughs> clarity, clear. Okay. and that, you know, a set process where the, you know, the stakeholders have a discussion about it, but then it's not a, a system where, you know, so-and-so is saying, well, we have to do X, Y, and Z, or someone's unhappy. You know, people are always going to be unhappy. Yeah. But having a common goal, so agencies, you know, a lot of my work talks about missions. And so having a clear mission that people are really driven collaboratively around and having a clear process. And I think that's the two things that, you know, we, we're working on here. How does that work in the, in, you know, if you study the EPA when you've got a mix of people that are political appointees mm-hmm. and you've got a mix of people that are career public servants. And certainly they hold their own opinions politically, but they're, they sort of occupy a different seat. They're not a political appointment. So how, how do those dynamics play out in agencies? Yeah, so, you know, the folks that I research and talk with are the career civil servants, right? So like the vast majority of agencies but every four years, every two years, it can even be where you have the top-level political appointee that is changing. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, you're at service of the the president of the United States. And so you're giving policy directions in Congress, too. And so, but if you haven't changed legislation since the 1970s, it's where it becomes a little bit murky. Um, and often the courts become involved in interpreting that for you. And I think with political appointees, I mean, there's a lot of discussion within the discipline where you should have you should appoint someone that is within the agency that they've okay. been a career civil servant and they're aware of the agency's mission instead of an outsider that's very unaware of the organizational culture and so you often see a rift between the two in terms of making decisions. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter about that at you know at the State Department yes. early in the Trump administration with Rex Tillerson. Yeah, so I think it's it's that that balance. But you have folks that have spent their careers dedicated to environmental protection or fish and wildlife that are the experts. And, and often you have the expertise to make those decisions and analyze 
um, what's best for, you know, the day-to-day, and, and the politics often gets in the way of that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's sort of an interesting way to design a system. Yes. <laughs> anyway, okay, let's try to land the ship, Sarah. Um, you know, I just, I, I got to close by saying thank you for all that you do. You are involved in so many exciting, positive initiatives, and your dedication to students just shines through. Um, and it was recently commemorated. You were you were uh, recognized as most inspirational professor here at University of Montana uh, last academic year. So congrats on that. And uh, it's just a pleasure to collaborate with you. So thanks for coming on the pod. Thank you. All right. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah. She's really doing amazing things with that uh, Master's of Public Administration degree. Check it out if you're at all interested. And um, yeah, stay tuned for more news about the Big Sky Poll over the next few weeks. We'll be releasing uh, results from that poll that's in the field right now. So pay attention. Okay, next week we have Alan Adams. Alan Adams is a sales rep for Patagonia, and he's a close colleague and friend who has generously taught in our program in a variety of capacities um, over the years. Uh, I got the chance to speak with Alan not only about what it's like to work for a really intriguing, innovative, uh, progressive private company like Patagonia, but also Patagonia's, you know, they are wading into some political lands that they have not uh, waded into quite so aggressively uh, before and really staking a claim in this election and putting themselves out there. And I talked to Alan about what that's like as an employee and what that's like as a salesperson trying to get out there and collaborate with retailers that maybe or maybe don't share that same political bent. So look forward to bringing that conversation to you next week with Alan Adams. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that this podcast was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. They're one of the largest electrical wholesale supply companies in the world with nearly 600 locations. CED is a privately owned business-to-business company that distributes just about every piece of equipment you need to keep your lights on, your energy flowing, and your lifestyle comfortable. CED is also an important employer in our community, and they have a keen interest in University of Montana graduates. To explore career opportunities, check out cedcareers.com. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few folks for making this project happen. First off, thanks to Elizabeth Willey, Communications Director here at the University of Montana College of Business. And thanks to our fabulous interns, Mason Dow and Max Gibson. I'd also like to give a special shout out to VTO for providing us with music. And finally, great thanks to my producer, Jeff Meese. As we close, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag a new angle when you do. Thanks a lot and see you next time.